your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Hey, what medical condition is supposed to have uh, afflicted Napoleon and was partly responsible for his defeat at Waterloo? And uh, what chemical links cell phones, compact discs, and astronauts' helmets? Those are the questions that we'll be exploring here today, or at least that you should be trying to find the answers to. And should you find those answers, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also text to 514-800. I'm Joe Schwartz. I uh, direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. I teach chemistry, and I believe that uh, chemistry is the central science that ties all the other sciences together. It's that thread, because if you know what molecules are all about, the reactions that they can and cannot engage in, you get a pretty good feel for what can and cannot happen in the world. Today, for the last time, I will tell you about our uh, public science symposium and why for the last time, at least for this year, because it's coming up tomorrow. This year, we have selected the topic of stress, obviously very appropriate given that we have been uh, stressing about COVID-19 for the last uh, two years. This uh, takes place tomorrow at 7 p.m. in Moise Hall at McGill University. That's the uh, auditorium in the Arts Building, and that's the building uh, right up the uh, central driveway. It is the building that has the flag on top. It's the original McGill University uh, building. And uh, we'll be talking about stress, uh, about what you can do to alleviate it, how you can live with it. And uh, if you want to attend, all you have to do is uh, register it's free, of course. You go to our website, mcgill.ca slash OSS, mcgill.ca slash OSS, and you'll be guided on how to do that. And uh, should be a very, very revealing uh, uh, evening. Well, given the fact that we are going to be talking about stress, I want to tell you a little bit of a story. I think I was about 12 years old when I attended my first university lecture. No, not because I was a precocious child or anything like that. I wasn't. And I certainly did not go willingly. But my parents dragged me. And it was at McGill. It was in the FDA building. I recall that. And I was dragged there because we were going to listen to a talk by Dr. Hans Selye, at that time already recognized as a world authority on stress. I'm not sure why my parents were so bent on attending this event, but I suspect it was because the good doctor had a Hungarian name. And of course, he was uh, of Hungarian background, and he was uh, indeed very proud of that. Well, you know, memory is a strange thing. I couldn't tell you what the lecture was about because, of course, all of that talk about cortisol and hormones was certainly uh, above my head at that time. But I do vividly remember one story that Dr. Selye told. It was about meeting a drunk who was mildly abusive. 
Selye described how he had a decision to make. He could either get into a physical confrontation with the chap or ignore him and walk away. A fight would have elevated his blood pressure. I remember this because he was wildly waving around a blood pressure cuff. And he would have increased his pulse rate. Both effects which he decided were better avoided. Then he spoke of another situation, one in which he was mugged and threatened on the street. This time there was no turning the other cheek. Action was required. His pulse raced, blood pressure soared, and the attacker was beaten off. I, I, I got to tell you, I, <laughs> I had a bit of a tough time believing that that particular story because Dr. Say was hobbling around uh, a result of two hip operations, as I later learned. But never mind that. I got the point of this story at the time. Um, you know, not exactly, but uh, many years later, uh, I really had it uh, properly explained when I read his classic work, The Stress of Life. By then, I had, a, of course, discovered that Professor Say was probably the world's leading authority on what was being called biological stress syndrome. Actually, he was more than an authority. He was the originator of the term. In the 1930s, he was already a young professor at McGill, and he carried out a series of experiments on rats, injecting them with a variety of toxins. While there were various reactions depending on what specific chemical he injected, there was also a number of common symptoms produced, irrespective of the nature of the toxin. The rat's adrenal cortex enlarged, their spleen and thymus gland shrank, and bleeding ulcers developed in their gut. In other words, there was a reaction just from being stressed. Selya then went on to show that same reactions could be produced by subjecting the rats to demanding physical or psychological conditions. Stress itself was capable of triggering chemical reactions in the body. And that was his major contribution. It didn't take long to find out exactly what's going on. Under stress, the adrenal gland pumped out adrenaline and cortisol, which then caused the physical symptoms. And this happened not only in rats, but in humans as well. Stress, it seemed, could raise our blood pressure, make us sweat, and force our heart to beat faster. If there was underlying heart disease, it could even kill us. But could was Seye's key word. Stress didn't necessarily have to have negative effects on the body. The key was our adaptation to stress. How we handled an adverse situation, not the situation itself, was critical. This is where the story of the drunk comes in. Celia maintained that there was a choice in the possible responses to a stressful situation. You could get angry and provoke a potentially dangerous physiological response or walk away and spare the body. We often have such a choice. Find a parking ticket on your car and you can rant and rave and then pay the ticket or calmly accept the fact that you were negligent and pay the ticket. Financial penalties the same but the penalty to your health may be quite different. Of course, we don't always have a choice. After all, that's why our bodies evolved the ability to secrete adrenaline and cortisol. Sometimes we do need a sudden burst of energy in the heart's pumping capacity. Sometimes we do need to fight or flee, as in Say's account of the mugger. Consider what is worth fighting for and what is not. 
That was uh, Dr. Sayer's message, because indeed it may be a matter of uh, of life and death. Uh, to put it uh, another way, uh, you got to know what is worth worrying about and not what not. What is worth fighting about and what is not worth fighting about. Uh, when you have uh, some sort of, of, of uh, disagreement with a life partner, do you want to make it into a big deal? Or is it actually trivia that should not be uh, uh, thought about or, or further discussed? There's always a choice of what is worth stressing yourself over and what is not worth stressing yourself uh, about. And uh, uh, obviously, I mean, there are some stressor, stressors in life that you can't avoid, uh, being diagnosed with some serious disease, for example. But there are still ways that you can adapt to it. Uh, about how you handle the the condition. Um, you just got to know what is worth stressing about and what is not. And that really is a key to health. Uh, if you want to put it another way, how about Kenny Rogers and his famous song? You got to know when to hold them and you got to know when to fold them. And that could be the key to happiness. So these are the kind of things that we will discuss tomorrow during our Symposium on Stress. Okay, I had posed a question about uh, Napoleon and Waterloo and what condition may have uh, affected Napoleon that Change the course of the battle, supposedly. I think we have William on the line. William? Yeah, hi, Dr. Joe. Hi. Yeah, I read uh, somewhere a long time ago that at the Battle of Waterloo, <clears throat> Napoleon had a hard time sitting on his horse because of hemorrhoids. Yes, that's exactly the story. And that was detailed in a book by Phil Mason uh, called Napoleon's Hemorrhoids uh, and other small events that change history. And, you know, he, he said that uh, there's a belief uh, that the French military leader suffered a painful bout of hemorrhoids on the morning of the Battle of Waterloo, and this prevented him from riding his horse to survey the battlefield, as, of course, was his custom, and that this could have contributed to his defeat. However, when we checked with Waterloo experts, uh, such as uh, Alasdair White, who has written a lot about Napoleon, uh, he says that the story is an absolute myth, and it was concocted by Napoleon boosters because they couldn't believe that the great man lost, so there must have been something that was wrong with him. Well, I don't think that we will ever uh, find out whether or not Napoleon had uh, hemorrhoids. And uh, obviously, there are other mysteries about uh, Napoleon as well. One that we've talked about often was the contention that he was actually uh, poisoned with arsenic either from the dye that was used in the wallpaper in the, the room where he um, lived for the last year of his life, uh, or because the British had purposely poisoned him. So that's uh, another mystery that I don't think will ever be cleared up. But, uh, you know, it's always interesting to look at these uh, uh, supposed stories that altered uh, history. All right, so that can question I, was answered. Can I ask answered. you a question, Thank Dr. You. Joe? Yeah, sure. Okay, you know, uh, sometimes I visit Cornwall, uh, Ontario, 
Mm-hmm. And Don Tarr was there for many years. I think Don Tarr closed uh, maybe 15 years ago or something. Oh, yeah, and you could smell it when you were yeah, getting near there. Yeah, and uh, I was wondering uh, if the soil in where Don Tarr used to be is still very contaminated, and could it be dangerous to the people who live there? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, most uh, the uh, the reason that there was... Um, you know, pollution associated with it was because of stuff that they release into the air. Yeah. Uh, in the pulping process, like uh, hydrogen sulfide, sulfur dioxide. But uh, that would dissipate in the air. Of course, it, it was very unpleasant smell and, and not good to breathe it in. But I don't think it had anything to do with the soil. Uh, okay. Okay. Uh, okay. I appreciate the, uh, the answer. And okay. uh, I'm glad I got uh, the question about Napoleon right <laughs> Yeah, you did. Okay. okay, thanks very much. All right, so let me just replace that question. Now, this for this is for those of you who have some uh, knowledge of chemistry. Uh, spearmint and caraway have very different odors, right? I mean, you you know, you sniff some spearmint and caraway, very very different. Yet the odor of both is due to the same molecule, which is carvone. It has the formula C10H14O. With the atoms joined exactly the same way. How can this be? How can two molecules made up of exactly the same atoms joined in exactly the same way, how can they have a different smell? If you know the answer, you give us a call, 514-790-0800. Of course, that's where you can address any kind of question that you have. And you can also uh, you know, text whatever answer you have to my, uh, to my uh, questions. <clears throat> No, I, I've talked uh, often uh, on the show about uh, genetic modification, genetic engineering. Uh, generally, uh, in my view, uh, a positive process which has uh, made uh, life for farmers better and in the long run for the cons- uh, consumer as well because it has reduced the price of things like soy products and, and canola uh, products, uh, uh, which... Um, thanks to genetic engineering, can be produced uh, more cheaply. Of course, there always has been some controversy. And one of the biggest controversies about genetic modification was golden rice. Uh, Golden rice is uh, rice that is golden because it has a gene from um, the daffodil that allows it to produce beta carotene, which is the body's precursor to to vitamin A. And... uh, Originally, this was developed about 20 years ago, but because of all the controversies, it was never uh, marketed until now. And golden rice has finally appeared, at least in the Philippines. The Philippines has approved the planting of golden rice, and this has taken a large step towards reducing deaths and blindness due to vitamin A deficiency. Estimates are that this deficiency causes about a million deaths every year, and a half a million cases of blindness in children around the world. We don't hear much about this problem in North America because here vitamin A deficiency is rare. Meat, fish, and dairy contain vitamin A, and carrots, tomatoes, sweet potatoes, squash have plenty of beta-carotene that the body converts to vitamin A. The situation is very different in the developing world, where often the main source of sustenance is rice. As early as the 1990s, 
scientists explore the possibility of modifying rice with genes that code for the production of beta-carotene. By 2000, Ingo Patricus at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology had managed to insert a gene from daffodils and one from a common soil bacterium into the genome of rice to produce golden rice, with the color being due to beta-carotene. The amount of beta-carotene produced in golden rice was increased significantly in 2005 when researchers at Syngenta added a gene from corn. Consuming half a cup of this version provides the daily requirement of vitamin A. Despite the potential of golden rice to save lives and prevent blindness, many activist groups, Greenpeace being a prime example, uh, were opposing its introduction. Why? Because they are against genetic modification in principle and therefore argue against golden rice. The fact is that numerous studies have demonstrated the safety of genetically modified rice, which both Canada and the U.S. have approved for cultivation, but of course, there is no need here. The opposition to golden rice is, is I think, unjustified, and activists are putting their anti-GMO agenda ahead of the lives of people. Vitamin A deficiency, I said, is not a rare phenomenon around the world. We're talking about lots of cases of blindness and death in children. And then, of course, the activists will say, well, you know, why do we need to go the, the golden rice route? Why not just give these uh, kids uh, supplements of beta carotene, which, of course, is available. I mean, you go to, you know, any health food store or indeed any pharmacy and you can buy either vitamin A supplements or beta carotene supplements. And, and of course, beta carotene is the same in, in, in the long run because in the body it converts to vitamin A. But... This is just not practical when you're looking at, you know, remote areas and in India and and in in, in Africa, you're not going to be able to deliver vitamin supplements to those people and neither will it be possible to encourage them to, to take these. I mean, this is just not a part of their life. However, eating rice is indeed a part of their life. And if they learn to grow the golden rice, then, of course, that will go a long ways towards uh, solving the problem. Uh, I've uh, been following the Golden Rice saga ever since the beginning, and uh, I just don't see why there should be this uh, opposition to it. Uh, there's no conceivable way that this can be a, a problem, uh, and the only reason that you have these activists uh, uh, going into contortions about it is because they just have a general opposition to the concept of genetic modification. So they are, you know, quite willing to throw out the baby with the bathwater, which is just what they are doing. There is really no health issue with golden rice, except for the fact that it can prevent blindness and death in children. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. I think we have Rod on the line with an answer to one of my questions. Rod. Yeah, hi. 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 I have a guess about this. I, I don't know the answer, but I'm guessing it's chirality, okay. that uh, you've got a left-hand one and a right-hand one. That's, exactly right. That's exactly right. Did you ever take organic chemistry? 
Uh, no, but my father was a chemist, and I had an interest in in chemistry, uh, a, a deep interest in, in high school, did very well. Mm-hmm. You're exactly right. Um, it's a bit difficult to explain on the radio, but, but you can look at your hands. Your hands are mirror images of each other, right? Yep. But they cannot be superimposed one on top of the other. And the same thing with uh, certain molecules. Because of the way they are constructed, usually a consequence of the carbon atom, which is tetrahedral, that is the bonds from its point to the corners of the tetrahedron, if you have four different atoms attached to that central carbon, uh, they can be attached in one of two ways, which are mirror images of each other. And this can have uh, certainly a consequence, uh, as it is the case with spearmint and caraway, because they do smell uh, differently. So you're quite right. Uh, I, I understand exactly. there are some sugars that are like that, some that we can yes, digest and others we can't or something. But I, I Absolutely. Don't know I mean, uh, ordinary table sugar is chiral. Now, the, the term chiral means that it is capable of, of existing in mirror image forms. And uh, indeed, uh, there is the uh, mirror image form of, of sugar that is not recognized by the body and would not be digestible. Uh, unfortunately, neither is it sweet. Uh, furthermore, it would be very difficult to make in the laboratory. But in theory, yes, this is uh, this is correct. So the the word chiral actually comes from the Greek meaning hand. So uh, molecules that are said to be chiral have handedness. That is, they have a relationship to each other, just like our two hands, which are non-superimposable mirror images. Very good. So thanks. I'm, I'm thanks guessing for that. that's the same as chiropractors, right? Same, same uh, chiropractors, uh, of course, that's the origin of the term too. Chiropractors use their hands to manipulate the body, not not always in an advantageous way. Okay. Thank you very much, Joe. I'm a, I'm a great fan. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm I'm going to do a bit of uh, self promotion uh, right now. Uh, why not? My latest book is just out. In fact, it just came out a couple of days ago. It's called Quack Quack. And uh, it's a journey through the world of pseudoscience, trying to expose all of the nonsense out there. And uh, that, you know, is is kind of what I have built much of my career uh, around. And uh, there are a large number of stories in there. Uh, separating sense from nonsense and uh, guiding you towards science and away from pseudoscience. So the book is called Quack Quack. I think we have a pretty good cover for it. As you can imagine, uh, there are two ducks on, on the cover. And the easiest way to get this book is through Amazon. Uh, you just go to amazon.ca or amazon.com and you can order it. There's also the... Uh, uh, version of uh, of it uh, where uh, you can listen to the book, a talking book. Uh, and there's a Kindle version. So you can get the Kindle version, you can get the talking book, or if you like to hold books in your hand, then of course you can order the uh, real copy, the real book from uh, Amazon. So it's called Quack Quack. And uh, I think you'll be entertained and you'll be informed about all of the snake oil that is still out there today. So let me talk about that. Let me talk a little bit about snake oil. And it must have been quite a sight at the World's Exposition Chicago, 1893. Clark Stanley, 
better known as the Rattlesnake King, reached into a sack, plucked out a snake, slid it open, and plunged it into boiling water. When the fat rose to the top, he skimmed it off and used it on the spot to create Stanley's Snake Oil, a liniment that was immediately snapped up by the throng that had gathered to watch the spectacle. Little wonder. After all, Stanley had proclaimed that the liniment would cure rheumatism, neuralgia, sciatica, lumbago, sore throat, frostbite, and even toothache. It wasn't too hard to convince the onlookers about the wonders of the liniment, particularly when it came to arthritis. All Stanley had to do was point out that snakes obviously did not suffer from this condition and seemed well lubricated internally. The crowd lapped up the hype and shelled out the money, and many claimed immediate relief from their pain. Could there have been something to this remedy? Eh, maybe. But if it offered any relief, it wasn't due to any rattlesnake oil. It seems the snake act was only for show, and the liniment that was actually sold, it had been previously prepared, and not from snakes. Chemical analysis of a surviving sample revealed a mixture of mineral oil, beef fat, turpentine, camphor, and red pepper. As it turns out, both camphor and capsaicin, the latter found in red pepper, do have some pain-killing effect when rubbed on aching joints. But the most effective ingredient in Stanley's snake oil was a good dose of placebo. Actually, Clark Stanley didn't come up with the idea of snake oil remedies. That notion can be credited to the ancient Chinese who rubbed the oil on aching joints and claimed relief. Stanley probably heard about the remedy from Chinese immigrants who had come to America to seek their fortune. Many found jobs building the Transcontinental Railroad and could well have used snake oil they had brought along to help deal with the backbreaking work. Chinese snake oil, though, was certainly not made from rattlesnakes. Traditionally, the oil was extracted from the fat sack of the Irabu sea snake. And that makes things interesting. As it turns out, sea snakes, like fish, are rich in omega-3 fats. Being cold-blooded animals, they have to be equipped with fats that don't harden in cold water, and omega-3 fats fit that bill. Irabu sea snakes actually are even richer in omega-3 fats than salmon, a popular source of these fats. We've heard a great deal about omega-3 fats in recent years, including their potential benefits in improving brain function, reducing the risk of heart attacks, alleviating depression, and even in helping arthritis. Ah, so we're back to that arthritis. And there may be some connection here because omega-3 fats are the body's precursors to certain prostaglandins that are known to have anti-inflammatory effects. So Chinese snake oil might actually have a beneficial effect. If you ingest it, but rattlesnake oil contains very little omega-3 fat, so that even if Stanley's liniment had some rattlesnake oil, it would have been not much use, even if people swallowed it. But of course, all Stanley asked them to swallow was the hype. This huckster may not have done much for his customers' health, but he did leave us with a legacy. Thanks to him, we commonly use the term snake oil for ineffective remedies. 
and some of today's snake oils make Stanley's product look respectable. And of course, we've spoken about this um, many times in the past. The uh, large number of, of bogus products or overhyped products that are available on the internet. And, uh, you know, when it comes to, to conditions like arthritis, we have, which have their ups and bound, downs, you know, they're sort of cyclical. Uh, whatever you take may just happen to coincide with an upswing in the disease. And then, of course, people will make the association and uh, think that the intervention was responsible for the benefit. Of course, if they happen to be taking something that doesn't produce any results, they'll never go around telling anybody of it. So positive results get reported, negative ones don't. And that, of course, means that there's a bias out there. Uh, but you're talking about arthritis products. You know, it's not such a serious uh, business, you know, to, to be taking some dietary supplement for, for that because uh, it probably doesn't do any harm, probably doesn't do any good. But where we really should object to this is when they are hawking substances for serious diseases. When someone is claiming that shark cartilage will cure cancer, that's a totally different story. That is just snake oil. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. I'm still looking for the answer to the other question that I posed. Uh, cell phones, compact discs, and astronauts' helmets, <clears throat> all made of the same plastic. What plastic is that? So it's used to make cell phones, compact discs, and astronauts' helmets. Want to know what that plastic is? So I spoke earlier about uh, Dr. Hans Seye and... Uh, uh, how he linked uh, stress to physical problems. And uh, he had suggested that inappropriate negative emotions can be physically destructive. Well, if that is so, what can positive emotions do? And that's the question that cropped up in Norman Cousins' mind in 1964, when the well-known writer and editor developed a form of arthritis that attacks connective tissue in the body. Ankylosing spondylitis terrible disease, usually progresses to an immobilizing welding of the joints in the spine, ribs, neck, and jaw. Could positive emotions like laughter be of any help in battling the ailment, Cousins wondered. To find out, he decided to undergo what he called laughter therapy. He rented movies starring the Marx Brothers or the Three Stooges, and he began to laugh his way back to health. Within eight days, there was some improvement, and four months later, Cousins was back at work on his way to conquering the disease. He recounted his remarkable escapade in a classic book, The Anatomy of an Illness. But was Norman Cousins really cured by laughter, or was he just one of the lucky ones who happened to recover from ankylosing spondylitis? Because there is potential spontaneous remission. The... Uh, Chance of that happening is very low, but it can happen. 
It's very difficult to know whether he was one of the few lucky ones or that he really benefited from the laughter. It's a difficult question to answer, but there's no doubt that there were many others who tried to follow in his footsteps and tried to laugh themselves to health, but did not beat the disease. Of course, they didn't end up writing books about their experiences. Cousins' self-cure may be questionable, but his contribution to science is undeniable. He sensitized the scientific community for the need to study the the body-mind relationship in a serious way. And since that time, of course, we have learned a great deal about the role that emotions can play in in health. There have been numerous studies. A classic study reported in New England Journal of Medicine uh, investigated this by infusing the cold virus into the nose of volunteers. And these volunteers filled out questionnaires Uh, very, very detailed questionnaires about aspects of their life from which experts were able to determine the extent to which they were stressed, you know, how happy they were, what kind of catastrophes they had, uh, you know, uh, come across in their life, you know, deaths of relatives, illness, uh, academic problems, and all of these, you know, were categorized. And the results were, were surprisingly clear. Those people who were highly stressed from any situation, be it disease or, or, you know, family matters or whatever, they were more likely to develop a cold based on the virus that was put into their nose. Not everyone developed a cold. I mean, you can take a hundred people off the street and put the cold virus into their nose. They will not all get a cold. I mean, that's just a consequence of the, how the human body functions. But in this particular case, uh, they certainly were able to um, find a link between uh, stress levels and the propensity to develop a cold. So it's very interesting. And uh, those kind of studies were triggered by uh, Norman Cousins' observation. It is also well known that uh, patients who take part in support groups tend to fare better with their disease than ones who just uh, kind of uh, wallow alone in their misery. Uh, Interaction with other people, uh, especially with shared experiences, can be very, very helpful. So both uh, Hans Seye and Norman Cousins have played uh, very important roles in um, uh, the understanding of the body-mind connection. I'll uh, go to Taiwan for a second here, and we're going to travel back in time to 1998. And the opening of the world's first cat cafe. (laughs) No, no, they didn't serve coffee to cats. They served cats to people. The idea was that customers could mingle with cats without the responsibility of owning a pet and at the same time enjoy a good old cup of joe. A Japanese tourist was taken with the concept and introduced cat cafes to Japan, a country that is absolutely infatuated with cats. Since Japanese apartments are small and usually prohibit pets, the cat cafes afforded an opportunity to have a cat experience. These cafes soon multiplied like rabbits, and now there are some 150 cat cafes in Japan, and they have been joined by 
a rabbit cafe where customers can stroke the little furry animals. Tokyo also features a hedgehog cafe, and there are sheep, raccoon, and owl coffees as well. Similar cafes have opened around the world, including one in Montreal, Le Chat Heureux. Proponents of these cafes claim that interacting with animals has a therapeutic effect. Stress is reduced, blood pressure is lowered, and levels of serotonin, the happiness neurotransmitter, as well as oxytocin, the so-called love chemical, are increased. There's also a boost in endorphins, the body's own pain-killing substance. Well, maybe, maybe not. The most unusual animal cafe is the reptile cafe in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, where you can have your coffee as an albino python curls around your arm and a scorpion scampers across the table. Hardly conducive to reducing anxiety, one would think. These cafes are not without controversy. Is there anything in the world today that is without controversy? I don't think so. While interacting with animals may reduce stress in people who enjoy petting them, there is worry that as far as the animals are concerned, they may experience increased stress, since lifestyle in the cafes is not suited for some of the creatures. So it's it's interesting, and you know, I mean, no, no question that that uh, pets can uh, serve as um, relief from stress for a lot of people. There have been even studies on that, uh, that uh, uh, animal companionship can reduce general overall stress in life. And uh, there there are even um, uh, therapies that involve animals. And, you know, there are clinics, cancer clinics, where uh, as patients wait to be infused with their drugs or whatever, uh, they can play with animals and uh, this has reduced their their stress. What I would really like to see is a duck cafe where customers can pet ducks and uh, I would be happy to occasionally go there and give them a talk on quackery. So if anyone wants to take that on, open a, a duck cafe, I'd be happy to, to interact uh, with you. And, uh, you know, we could uh, sell ducks and sell books about quackery, etc. I don't know if ducks are particularly uh, accepting of being petted by, <laughs> by, by people. Anyway, just, uh, just an idea. <clears throat> So we've run the gamut of many things here today. We started uh, talking about stress and, you know, the important uh, ways that that can affect our life. Uh, we would all like to be without stress. Although, you know, uh, the truth is that stress is actually very difficult to define because uh, the same kind of phenomenon that causes stress in one person may not be stressful to someone else. Uh, questionnaires show that People are are um, very afraid uh, about public speaking, and they get very stressed if they are asked to speak in public, whereas others, of course, are not. Uh, obviously, I'm not stressed by speaking in public, but someone else uh, might be. So uh, it's not only the the uh, stress that matters, but how you handle it. And that was another point that Hans Saye made frequently. 
that um, you know it's it's not only what you eat that matters it's also what's eating you but uh, you can make decisions about how you are going to handle what's eating you well we've run out of time but of course we'll be back with you same time same station next week until then i'm josh schwartz hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right <laughs>